This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore what it would mean to do things differently in education research. With me are Elmi Slater and Posse Salberg. Writing analytically in a more formal way, and it was really interesting breaking that down and actually having my own voice be a part of my writing process. And I feel like I haven't had many opportunities through mostly writing analytically and formally in a more like critical way. I haven't had much of a chance to write something that's opinion based but still informed. For New York Times, for example, that's where it comes. So you have an editorial here that the editorial board or editors write about something happening. Then on the other side there, there's often a piece invited from an expert, and that's called op-ed. It's also often used as an opinion, uh, opinion piece. Elmi Slater is a year 11 student from Canberra, Australia, and Posse Sauberg is a professor of education at the University of Melbourne. Today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Canberra. Elmi Slater, Posse Salberg, welcome to Fresh Ed. Welcome to the University of Canberra. It's so wonderful to have you here. Wonderful to have you in front of a live audience. Yeah, thank you, Will. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks, Will. It's always a pleasure to join you in Fresh Ed. So the conference, as we've said over and over again, is change the world, doing things differently in education research. Now at one point, it actually had a question mark at the end of that statement, doing things differently in education research, question mark. And I really liked the question mark. It sort of was a bit ambivalent. It was unsure, can we do things differently? Not a statement of fact. And I think that's where we want to start today, sort of thinking about What are some of the structures, what are some of the traditions that we have in the academic world, in the education space, that we might be rather trapped by? And one of the big ones, and this is perhaps a bit provocative, one of the big ones is education publishing. Last year, there was 2.8 million journal articles published. Four years earlier, there was 1.9 million, right? So there's an increase of journal articles, and for all sorts of reasons. And some subset of that is education-related. And strangely, we have all this research coming out, more and more research coming out, and in the field of education, we have the same exact problems. There's finance problems, there's equity problems, there's learning outcome problems. So I guess, Posse, to start, why is this the case? Why do we have more research and all the same problems? Yeah, thanks, Will. I think it's a really important opening question here. I think one reason might be that we have had two or three years of COVID, and many of the scholars like myself, when you didn't have time to do field research or teaching or anything else, what what did you do? You went to your desk and wrote journal articles or books or something like that. So there may be some reasons for that. But I would actually go a little bit further in your provocation, Will, and say that in education, we probably have about three or 400 education academic journals around the world. And we probably publish about, I don't know, 25,000 articles a year. According to some data, about half of those 25,000 articles published every year in education have never been read by anybody else except the the referees and maybe the author or co-author and their spouses or friends. Okay? So if this is true, then of course it's alarming. But even more alarming is that according to the similar sources, about 75% of all these journal articles in education have never been cited by anyone, which indicates that the they have had no impact on anything. So I think, you know, if you want to put it that way, then we really have to not only ask that can we do things differently in education research, but we have to ask, say that we must do things differently in education research. Because, you know, I don't want to get into this space of doing a little mathematics and calculate that how many hours of 
work or money has been spent on that work that nobody really reads or doesn't have any impact on anything. And, uh, you know, please don't hear me as somebody who's against of publishing in journals or writing quite the opposite. I mean, big fan of those things. But just like you said in your introduction, I think that, you know, if anybody's doing writing journal articles only because you think that I have to do that because of my next promotion or this is the KPI of my faculty or university, I think we really need to sit down and say, is, is this really the smartest thing to do at all? And, you know, ask these questions that probably we're going to be talking about here is that what would be the alternative ways of publishing, you know, make, making your word, your research read more than it does now and have more impact that people would get back to you saying that I read your piece and it's really interesting and important we're going to do something about it rather than continue to have this growing number of publications and, and books and other things that nobody reads. I think uh, we, we have to be realistic and honest in front of these questions and in the conferences and conversations like this really not only ask that can we do things differently but how we can do that so that we can get to the better space in uh, publishing and you know making our voices heard. Really interesting sort of insight about trying to do things differently. And I guess, Elmi, I want to bring you in here because, you know, in a way, a lot of what we write about is has to do with students like yourself. So where do you learn about education and education research? Like, are you reading academic journal articles? Uh, unfortunately, I have to be part of the statistic that I haven't. But yeah, I don't know. It, through learning about education, I feel like there's not much of a conversation among students or between students and teachers on how things are done. I feel like it's like very kept to the teachers and educators. I don't know many students who have been involved in those conversations of making a change or education research. And what about education ideas, ideas about how education happens and where learning happens? Where do you find yourself learning about those things? Well, I guess through having my mum as a lecturer for one in education, I'm grateful that I'm exposed to a lot of, I don't know, ideas that maybe I wouldn't have considered otherwise. Recently, as of like this year, I joined uh, an Indigenous culture and languages class that Ellie was talking about having taught me in for the past four weeks. And in that, I think like my interest in education was really cultivated because of how much I found I enjoyed how that class was structured. And my results in that class and my enjoyment much higher than any of the other classes and it really got me thinking about how we do things. And one of the things that happens in that class is about writing op-eds, is that right? That's in English. I was introduced to op-eds through my last English assignment. Previously in school, I feel like I've been so used to being taught how to write like analytically. And through my secondary school experience, I was given the task of writing an op-ed. And I'd never even heard of that, even though I, I realized I knew what it was. But I, yeah, it had never come to me as a possibility that I could write one or that I would write one and get a grade for it, because I was so used to writing analytically in a more formal way. And it was really interesting breaking that d down and actually having my own voice be a part of my writing process. And um, I feel like I haven't had many opportunities through mostly writing analytically and formally in a more like critical way. I haven't had much of a chance to write something that's opinion-based, but still informed, yeah. And Pasi, you've done a lot of op-ed writing as well. 
Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with op-eds? Yes, let me ask you, because we have a lot of experience here in the room. Can I ask you to put your hand up if you feel comfortable explaining to a 10-year-old what an op-ed is? I can see two and a half hands. <laughs> okay, now I, I know the answer to the next question, so let me, but I want to ask you anyway. Put your hand up if you feel comfortable of writing an op-ed, that you know how to do that. So we have two or three. Actually, more people know how to do that than are able to explain to a 10-year-old what it is, which is kind of interesting. I mean, you, but you know, this is not a surprising thing. You ask about my experience, Will, and you know, I happen to have this rare opportunity to teach and do research three years at Harvard University recently before I came here in Australia. And one thing I did there in all of my courses, I was teaching three or four different courses. It's a graduate school of education, so there were master students or doctoral students. In all of my courses, the requirement of passing the course the minimum requirement was that you had to write an op-ed. If you wanted to get an A at Harvard, in my course, you had to get your op-ed published somewhere. But you had to show me that it's published somewhere on newspaper or online anywhere. But you need to, otherwise, it doesn't matter what you do in your course, you cannot get an A before you do that. I did it systematically in all of my courses. And so I had, during my time there, probably about 400 students or something like this all around the world, mostly from the United States. And if you know anything about university like Harvard, it's very, quite difficult to get in there. But one of the criteria to get accepted at Harvard is your ability to write. The key element of acceptance is how you write your own personal essay, your story, okay? So all these people are good writers of something. But of these 400 people that I had, I probably had four or five who knew how to write an op-ed. There were more people who said that I know how to do that because they thought that this is part of the assessment of the course, but a handful of people actually knew how to do that. Every one of them, even those who I know how to do, do an op-ed, or I've been writing kind of an op-ed, 100% of them said it's really hard to do. It's, and everybody said to me that it's much easier to write an 25-page uh, essay as a coursework and get it accepted and highly rated than write a 400-word op-ed or something that would be really seen well. So my experience is this, and I continue the same thing in um, teaching at the UNSW in Sydney for four years and now at, at Melbourne. I have the same thing, that you can't pass my course without writing an op-ed and getting it published. And I've, because I firmly believe that this is a skill that all the graduates uh, need in their lives and all the graduates that I teach, that I send to the world, I see them as change makers. Nothing else but change makers. The task is to change the world or change their communities or schools or something. I'm not interested in preparing people for you know doing same things over and over again. I want to prepare change makers. And that's why I'm saying that the skill to understand what an opinion piece or op-ed is and ability to write powerfully so that it has an impact and do it fast so that you can do it like right away here is an essential skill. But again, let me say that I'm not saying that my students would not need to know how to write a journal article or course work. Of course they do. But we do know that that type of writing has less and less likelihood to have any impact in practice. We need to equip these students also with the skills of communication that will help them to be change makers. So that's my experience. Mm -hmm. that many people want to do that. Many young people feel that, you know, this is exactly what I want to do. And the best part of my uh, student feedback everywhere at Harvard and here in Australia has always been the same. That now I know how to write something that people will read and they will read it again and they want to come, come back and ask me to to write more and that is a skill that we need to have with the students and that's why I continue to do so as long as I have a, a kind of a privilege to teach students so that's why it's, it's so important part of the uh, being an educator and change maker whether you work in a policy or research or in a classroom this is a skill that everybody needs I want to put you on the spot Pasi please do can you explain what an op-ed is as if we are all 10 year olds I, I, I didn't put my hand up <laughs>
<laughs> it's a great question. That's how I always start my course teaching as well. I ask my students, what is an op-ed? Most people don't even know what the op-ed, where does it come Do you know where it's come from? It comes from the newspaper industry a long time ago. So it means opposite of the editorial. So if you open the New, for New York Times, for example, that's where it comes from. So you have an editorial here that the editorial board or editors write about something happening. Then on the other side there, there's often a piece invited from an expert, and that's called op-ed. It's also often used as an opinion, uh, opinion piece. So the most important thing that people need to know, especially students need to know, that when I'm asking you to write an op-ed, I'm not talking about writing, just writing about your opinion, whatever you think. Because everybody knows, if you try to write an opinion piece to a, any journal, any newspaper here in Australia, you claim, you argue something. The first question you get from the edi editor pack is that, where's the evidence for this? How can you say something like this? So you have to be able to say something that is backed by your own research or somebody else's research or evidence. So it's just a different way of writing about the right, the, you know, things that we all do, uh, but in a, in a shorter and a kind of a more reader-friendly way. So opinion, for me, there are two different types of op-eds. There are op-eds that kind of a point to the problem, help people to understand what the problem is. For example, school refusal. The op-ed could be that, what is it and why is it a problem? Then there's another type of op-eds that look at the solutions. Like why kids don't want to go to school? Here are my three proposals how to solve that issue. What the, the mistake that my students, almost all of them do, is that they try to do this both. You have 400 words to do that and you just can't get it. So you, you kind of help people to understand what the problem is, let alone that you would help them to understand what to do with that. So that's why we need to be very careful when we are teaching people how to write op-eds, that you understand what it is and what you can do about it. But it's a great opening question is that what are we actually talking about? And you know, so often here in Australia and Finland and the United States, I've been in conversations where uh, prominent academics say that by, by, you know, we are not in a business of writing about our opinions, that we are in a serious business of writing the truth and the facts. But then th that only shows that we, we have a different understanding about what the op-ed or opinion piece is all about. So critically important question to, to go through. And I want to bring Elmi back in because I actually had the opportunity to read some of Elmi's op-eds before this session before this recording. And you wrote about indigenizing the curriculum. So can you tell us about the process of how you went about writing? You know, I think it was a four or five hundred words. It wasn't that long. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences writing op-eds? Yeah. Um, so in learning about an op-ed like two months ago, but previously no knowledge of what that was, even though I feel like I've read many, we were told that we could write an op-ed opinion piece on uh, any subject of interest. And kind of in doing so, I was just kind of exploring recent things. And it was um, just prior to the referendum, so I was really thinking about that. But I didn't want to write about that because I felt like there were already so many voices being heard. And I wanted to kind of highlight another issue that kind of was brought to light within that as well. And that was indigenizing our education system. I think in learning what indigenizing is, you have to learn the difference between indigenizing and decolonizing. With my previous teacher, Holly, the same course, we kind of had a discussion in this as a class and it really kind of opened my eyes up to what these two words mean and the different definitions. So decolonizing is just the undoing of like colonial elements and removing those. Whereas indigenizing is actually incorporating indigenous ways of knowing, doing and being. It kind of moves beyond what can be kind of seen as like tokenistic or just an acknowledgement and it actually like informs meaningful change. And in context of education and the curriculum, I was just thinking about how while the, like 
indigenous histories and culture is a cross-curriculum priority, but there is nothing in place to ensure teachers do that for one. And second, it, it's maybe perhaps considered more decolonizing, like the way teachers deliver this, and it's not actually changing the system that we teach. And through my indigenous culture and languages class, learning from country, learning in a more multimodal way, involving like forms and different th things that kind of move beyond just like literacy and numeracy. I don't know, I was kind of reflecting on that in writing the op-ed and my own personal experience within that class and then within all my other classes in a Western education system. And so when I began writing the op-ed, I realized it was really hard. I find writing very hard and I, I found it almost more difficult to kind of sit down and write something from opinion because I was so used to writing in a more analytical like lens. But once I kind of got the hang of it, I found it really like empowering and I also found benefits like I learned more about the topic that I was actually looking into because like Parsi said you can't just have an opinion piece that with no facts behind it it was kind of it made me like more informed on what I was trying to say like have my voice heard but like a stronger voice that's backed up with like and another thing I think is cool about opinion pieces is how you can involve anecdotes and more of a personal experience in them too and I think this combination of facts informed opinions and anecdotes that format really stood out to me and I think in writing one or two I don't know it's become a practice that I really enjoy and um, yeah especially on topics like indigenizing the curriculum and stuff like that that I think is really important. Can I, can I throw in one reminder that any op-ed writer or anybody if you're teaching your students to write op-eds uh, have to keep in mind I, I think this was something that Mark Twain said he, he said something like that he said that would have written your short letter if only I had more time to do that so we often you know when you do something like that you realize that you know writing a short piece takes much longer and again referring to my students uh, experiences everybody says the same thing that it's so much faster to write 25 pages or something than 400 words of something that's really really important and Pasi, I want to ask about you know yes it's difficult to write opinion pieces you can do a lot with it you can have a different voice as Elmi was talking about what about reach how wide can you reach an audience with op-ed writing? You know, sky is the limit in this space. I'll give you a couple of examples. I was writing op-eds for the Washington Post for many years when I was living in the United States. And I once wrote, it's probably about 10 years ago, it's still available there. I wrote a little piece called, and this was in the middle of this uh, teacher wars and fights in the United States. And everybody was saying that, you know, Finland has these amazing teachers. It's easy for you to say this and that because you have these great teachers who can turn around everything. So I wrote a kind of a piece for that conversation. If you read that, you need to understand the context that it was not just written for something, it was written to, as a response to these kind of false ideas that it's all about teachers, that if we just you know, have world-class teachers in our schools uh, here in Australia, everywhere else here actually we ha do have, but in many other countries we don't have, that everything would be fine. So I wrote this little piece called, I think it's titled, What if Great Finnish Teachers Taught in Your Schools? And basically my question was, that what would happen if, if we make a kind of a imaginary experiment and take, choose one state in the United States? And I happened to, I said, okay, let's say, or Indiana actually, because it's about the size of Finland and many things are similar. You know, export all the Finnish teachers there in Indiana and, and then bring all the Indiana teachers back to Finland and let them do what they do in the schools and cultures for five years and see what happens. It's a kind of a curious experiment. So I went, you know, went on with this idea, but, but my conclusion then up and was actually nothing much would happen differently that most of the Finnish teachers in the state of Indiana would have probably left teaching because they would say that, you know, this is not what I was prepared to do, that I was not prepared to, to prepare these kids every year to the tests and do some crazy things on them. 
And in Finland, the PISA results or any test results probably would not go that much lower only because of the having these Indiana teachers there. And, you know, it went viral, this little op-ed piece. And within months, it was read by, according to the, the editor of the Washington Post, by one and a half million people. And now it's read about three million people have read that piece. Okay. So my question to anybody who's writing journal articles here, that when was the last time when you had one and a half million readers of your journal article? I happen to sit in a number of editorial boards uh, when every year when we look at the kind of what has happened, if somebody has had 300 hits online in, in your article, it's a well done. It's a really well, well done. So, you know, that's a kind of a scale that we are talking about. And I'm often using this also as an example is that what can happen if you have a kind of a good piece at the right time to the right audience that so many people got back to me and some even got back to me with the money saying that, you know, this is so important thing that could you do a little bit research on that and, you know, compare this and that and we are happy to give you money to do that. And they wouldn't do that without this opinion piece. So you never know what's going to happen if you happen to be in a kind of a right place. And right. But you, you need to know how to tell the story and, and what people really need to hear about this. The other one I wrote just a few years ago, it's just in the beginning of the, the pandemic, there's a thing called, probably know this well, this Shanker Institute. There's a Shanker block in, in the United States that many people read. It's very well read according to uh, among American educators. So in a week, I, I wrote a piece about the, um, I think it was five things that we should not do when we return back to normal from COVID. Kind of a quick, it took about two hours to write that. I, I did it very quickly. I sent it there because they wanted to, they requested me to do that. And within the first week of online, it had 150,000 reads. So this is what we are talking about yeah. here. You know, if you care about impact, if you care about, you know, people having your ideas and think about them and look at the resources and, and evidence that you show there, you know, this is what we should do much more than we are doing right now. But if you don't care about those things, if, you, if you're happy with the, uh, you know, uh, celebrating 300 hits in your journal article every year, just go for it. Again, I think it's also about, you know, how do we see ourselves and our roles? And I don't want to undermine anyone who is writing journal articles, even if you have 300 hits. I think it's an important thing to do. But, you know, I see myself as a change maker. That's, that's what I do in the policy, in research, and in practice. And that's why, for me, it's a critically important that whatever I write, that somebody reads out there. And when somebody reads, I'm even happier when somebody reads what I write and they get back to me. Even if they get back to me and say that I completely disagree what you're saying, or you're wrong with that point. But I know that something has happened somewhere when people react like this. So it's also very much about, you know, how we see ourselves as academics and researchers and practitioners. And you may see yourselves in a different ways, so and that's fine. But what I'm talking about here is, is more about how I see my own role and our work. I think it's important not to also just glorify the op-ed. I think thinking about knowledge dissemination in an academic space needs to be beyond the op-ed as well. So, I, and I think, you know, I actually think about Elmi's mother, who is an artist academic or academic artist. I don't know exactly how to refer to you, Naomi. But, you know, artistic expression also has impact beyond and in a wider wider realm, similar to an op-ed, but also very different than an op-ed. So maybe, Elmi, you know, when thinking about your mother's sort of artistic life and her educational life, you know, and, and trying to balance both, how do you see artistic expression and art in the world of knowledge dissemination and creation? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess I feel kind of contradictory of myself when I'm talking positive about literacy and like writing op-eds. I feel like much of the Western system does put such a heavy emphasis on writing, but I think we also neglect art forms as well and art being like more of a critical pedagogy. And I think through my experience of education and learning, I'm a very visual person as well. Not everyone kind of learns in the same way. And I think because art is such a universal universal thing among all cultures share different art forms. It's something that everyone can do. It's accessible. And I've seen like firsthand through classrooms, like students engage more when it's they're learning through an art form. I engage more when I'm learning through an art form. And I have the privilege of having an artist mother and teacher, but not everyone has access to that, I guess. And yeah, so I do think it is really important to integrate arts across all subject areas. You know, we can also see that the academic writing or writing in general can be an art form. But again, I would ask how often the academic writing that we all know well could be seen or viewed as an art form. I, I th you know, for me, the kind of a typical way of writing academic stuff is much more kind of a linear thing, thing that you do one thing and then you move to another one. And somewhere there in the end of the line is a publication. And that's where this kind of a story ends. But, you know, why I'm so passionate about this, uh, you know, writing particularly op-eds, the kind of a journalistic style art form is that, and this goes back to what I did and always do with my students. And some of my students, like my Harvard students, all them they say that they have never ever had an experience like what we did in my courses because this thing that when they submitted the assessment task and assessment task here of course means your what you are requi required to do at the course that was the op-ed and I said that you can submit your assessment task as many times you want during the course it's not just the one submission that just five minutes before the deadline like most university students do and then you read it and you give them feedback I said you can do it as soon as like tomorrow if you want to do that I'm gonna read it and give you feedback or I'm gonna send it to somebody else who's gonna give you feedback. You write a next form, and this is exactly how art works, right? That you do a painting or sculpture or poet or song, and you go back to that, and you kind of improve it a little bit. You play it or look at it or show it to somebody and say, you know, cool, but you know, this is something you can do differently. You go back to that and write. But in academic writing, we rarely do that. That what students learn in a school and then at the university is that you do something and you show whether you can write or think or know things, and then you get feedback and create all that. And there's nothing you can do about it. But you know, the, we can do when we teach students how to write, we can use use it as an art form in the sense that you learn to work on your piece, this 400, 500 word piece, and you give it back to me and I give you feedback and we talk about it and you go back to your piece and, and, and improve it. And, and that's the experience that I was talking about, that almost all of my student, university students said that they have never had anything like this in school, nor the university. And I think that this is exactly how the learning, how to do things should be. That it's a kind of an art form that you do and you learn to love that and then you improve it and own it. But it is also beyond the written form. Right. So Posse, when you walked in, you were carrying a guitar case, right? Ricky is here from Amplify Music, who also has his guitars and, and will be having a musical event later today. And you and Rick, you have done conferences where you bring music into that academic space. Why do you do that? I don't know, actually. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's a really good friend. And, you know, Ricky has taught me so much about, you know, the power of music and how music can engage uh, things. I think I've probably taught you something about education and these things. But, you know, I've been doing this so long. First, I used to do this death by PowerPoint presentations where you have 50 different beautiful slides and people, everybody's sleeping. Then I stopped, but I was still talking a lot. Uh, now I'm not doing the PowerPoints that much, but I still talk a lot. None of those things is really, you know, going through so well that people would kind of 
get a like an emotional experience about what we're talking about. But now, you know, with him, we have started to do this kind of a keynote presentation. It's not a keynote, but it's a presentation where we combine performing music and a spoken word and storytelling about education. We talk about very important and critically, sometimes painful things. But when we blend those things with music, with the people's experience, particularly when it's a music where people can connect themselves, like we do Tom Petty and, uh, and Foo Fighters, you know, that type of music that people can sing along. And Ricky knows this much better than I do that. You know, how people feel when they kind of become part of the storytelling. And then they begin to kind of own these painful stories about education. They go home and say, I have to think, think about this a little bit. And we often, you know, we did a big gig in Sydney about a year ago. And we could, anywhere we go where there are primary school teachers in this country, there's always somebody who said, oh, you guys, you were playing music over there. But not only that, many of these people say that, and I remember what you were saying. I remember what the message was. And I think, you know, I'm much rarely, I, I meet a lot of people who said, yeah, I saw you speaking there. I said, so what, what, what did I speak about? Well, I can't remember that, but you were there. I remember your shoes. <laughs> but, you know, that's the power of music everywhere, that it kind of brings people together. It gives people something that they can connect to and, again, own these things and remember. And that, when it kind of begins to turn into the, the change. Remember, I'm a change maker here. So if you ask me the why do I do this, I do it because I think that this is a one way to move along with the, on this pathway to trying to change things, trying to help people to change how to think about these things and how to think about themselves as well. That, you know, I'm, I'm always telling to my audiences, like, like, here's the same thing that, that you guys, you know much more than you think you do. But without music, it's a difficult to get that. We often, with Ricky, we say that you actually can do much more music than you, you think you can do. If you stay here long enough today, you will experience the same thing, that you actually are musicians or we are all artists, we are all creative people, we are all academics in a sense. We just don't know that yet. That's why it's so important to, you know, move away from this uh, kind of a traditional ways of doing things. Uh, for me, it's probably a little bit similar way that I, I still write journal articles. I love to do that, um, but I only only write if I know that people will read it. I still speak about things if somebody asks me to invite me to speak, but I try to do things in a different way. I also do uh, different storytelling because I, I think that that's important. So again, it's my way of uh, thinking and doing about these things and I understand that people have their own things so let's be different because that's the exactly the, the beauty of this type of world that we are different people doing things in a different ways. So to end the conversation I want to think about you know how do we actually do things differently a practical step and I thought Elmi maybe if you you know what would you recommend to an audience of academics who often are researching you and students as a student what would you tell back to the audience and the academics how to do things differently what would be a first step? So, for firstly, I think a lot of teachers are very apprehensive about including art or uh, indigenous ways of knowing, doing and being. But I also think if you are willing and want to incorporate these different ways, you just go out of your way to research, find the right resources. I would like to see more change in like classrooms. A positive thing I've had from my indigenous culture and languages class is actually doing a lot of my classes outside on country and things like that. It's really helpful. Doing more classes that just literacy like uh, other mediums uh, like multimodal I actually think um, being able to translate your knowledge into a visual or audio uh, mode uh, shows like a higher thinking and I think that's a really good skill and I like seeing that being cultivated among me and peers yeah and speaking on the indigenizing the curriculum thing I've noticed that some teachers incorporate things and they might not be informed and sometimes that leads to cultural 
appropriation, but going on from that, it, don't be apprehensive to not include it at all because you're scared to do cultural appropriation. I think speaking to teachers like Ellie, other teachers within that area, I know that there's a lot in the UC faculty, elders, people in community, um, First Nations students is really important. It is important to include those ways of knowing, doing and being in teaching and different modes. So I'd really like to see more of that kind of, and I think overall the benefits is like a more inclusive and accessible uh, way of learning. And I think it benefits both parties too. But yeah, I don't know. And Pasi, what would be the recommended first step for this audience, but also the audience that might listen to this podcast in the weeks and months and years ahead? Yeah, I think the, probably the, particularly the audience like this, that we are in a great university here and uh, people are, you guys, you are working with the younger generation of educators. I think the question we really need to ask much harder and much often than we do is that what these graduates that you send to the world of work or what do they need? That what are those fundamental foundational skills as an educators that they need? And I think that the answer to this question is very different today than it, it was 10 years or 20 years ago. I would actually invite everybody to start on that question that what are those things that every graduate in your faculty or mine, what do they need to know and be able to do? And you know, the answer can be different, but communication is one of those things that everybody needs a very different communication skills as an educator. Whether you're a classroom teacher or principal or, or dean of the faculty or anything, that you need to be able to communicate very, very differently than before. You know, the, the whole different conversation would be to talk about the artificial intelligence, that how it's changing the many of these assessment tasks, like you colleagues, you know this as well as I do. That it doesn't make any sense anymore to ask students to write a 3,000 word essay about something because everybody will use a chat GPT or, or similar to do that. So we need to really think about what the machines cannot do that well and then make sure that we are asking students to do things that can help them to understand how to not only live with this new world of technology but how to work with the technology in, in a way but I think the good starting point would be the, this question that we need to be clear about what do we think that the graduates of your faculty need in their work and then make sure that they have all those foundational skills that we think they do for sure they need knowledge and understanding about many of these things that we teach them them here but there may be some things that we haven't thought about that much and uh, I've been speaking about what I think all my graduates all my students need to know and I, I will continue to do that because I think it's important. Well, Elmi Slater, Posse Salberg, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you for being here at the University of Canberra. Elmi Slater is a year 11 student from Canberra, Australia, and Posse Salberg is a professor of education at the University of Melbourne. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Octus, Obafemi Ungunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.